welcome to the Proper Mental Podcast. Normalising open and honest conversations about mental health by having open and honest conversations about mental health. another episode of the proper mental podcast this is episode 67 and my guest this week is Sanisha Winter who is a mental health advocate a TED speaker and a diversity and inclusion consultant Sanisha identifies as a black bi cis woman who lives and thrives with borderline personality disorder and depression it's her aim to support others by sharing her lived experience of her mental health conditions and her journey to recovery and it's come up time and time again on this podcast the role that identity plays in mental health and that's at the forefront of this conversation and it's at the forefront of Sanisha's work as a diversity and inclusion consultant. It was a real pleasure. I learned a lot from this episode and I really hope you do too. We get into the more complex areas of the mental health and mental illness conversation which is something I'm really really keen to do. Um, There'll always be a need for awareness, there'll always be a need for talking about self-care but I think if we really want to like move the conversation on if we want to really like get into this then we need to start looking into the the nuances and the subtle differences and the big differences that different communities experience when it comes to mental health and mental illness and that's exactly what Sanisha and I chat about during this episode we talk about different communities and how each of those communities is affected by extra stigma how they are misrepresented how they are discriminated against and the part that plays in people being mentally well and getting the help that they deserve. So yeah, there's a there's a lot going on. But we chat about Sanisha's diagnosis of BPD and how she had to learn how to talk about it. We trace her story through her childhood and being a member of all these different communities that I mentioned before and how that affected her growing up and went on to affect her as an adult. And we talk about how she works to take control of that and understand it all for herself and help other people to understand it too. It's a wonderful conversation. Sanisha did a TED talk in 2021 and it's called Vulnerability is Your Superpower and that's kind of how she came on my radar really. I've put the link in the episode notes. Go and give it a watch. It's absolutely wonderful and a lot of the things that Sanisha talks about in that talk kind of form the basis for the conversation that you're about to listen to. So yeah, grab a brew, strap yourself in for this one and let me know what you think of it. Sinisha doesn't have like a works profile on social media, so I'm not going to throw her handle out into the universe, but she's pretty easy to find if you want to track her down. As ever, if you want to get hold of me, propermentalpodcast.com. You can send me an email through the website. You can find me on all social media at propermentalpodcast. You can support the podcast at buymeacoffee.com slash propermental. And if you could take two minutes to like, review, subscribe, Tell a stranger on the bus, tell your mate at the news agents, knock doors on your street and tell your neighbours and just generally help me to spread the word. It would be very much appreciated. This is episode 67 of the Proper Mental Podcast with Sanisha Winter. Thank you very much for listening. Enjoy. Enjoy. 
So here we are with another episode of the Proper Mental Podcast. And my guest this week is Sanisha Winter. How are you, mate? I'm well, thank you. How are you? I'm doing good. Yeah, I'm great. Thank you. Thank you very much for joining me today, Sanisha. I really, really, um, really, really appreciate it. You came to my attention, Sanisha, through your TED Talk. And I'm guessing that a lot of people say that to you because a lot of people have seen that TED Talk, right? Um, mm-hmm. But um, I really want to talk about that. And I really want to talk about um, the work that you do now as well. But I think kind of to get us there, I wonder if we could rewind a little bit and kind of start start with you, Sanisha, and, um, you know, maybe about some of your uh, experiences growing up with mental health and um, some of the things you experienced that kind of like led you led you to um, to be where you are now, I suppose. Yeah. And um, so there's so much to say. <laughs> <laughs> and it's to think about how to condense it, but um, my family really struggled to talk about mental health issues and illnesses when I was growing up. It seemed it was very much a taboo sort of topic. And um, my grandparents are Jamaicans and my parents are born here. And I definitely think Jamaican culture of um, not talking about certain things definitely um, impacted my childhood. And uh, I come from a family that quite a few people have severe mental health illnesses within my family, but it's an unspoken um, acknowledgement. And so um, my grandparents, my nan um, was diagnosed with schizophrenia and I didn't find out about that until I attended a doctor's appointment with her about her diabetes. And it just made me quite frustrated because this was before I'd even it went on my own mental health journey to understand what I was going through. Um, and I definitely felt that with my family, talking about physical health was much more acceptable. I could go to appointments, but talking about mental health was seen as a sign of weakness or a sign of defeat. Yeah, I think that's kind of like, that's so true of so many people I spoke to, you know, and it's almost like ingrained in our society. And like you say, in our culture, or, you know, depending on, on where we're from. And, but it's, it is a common, a common thread, right. That this stuff just isn't kind of talked about, but obviously like it's always been there in previous generations. It was just, um, yeah, just dealt with and, and, well, not dealt with. So should I say um, in very different ways, right. hundred percent. And I think that's uh, that, dealing with it by not dealing with it by not engaging with the topic is how my family dealt with mental health and the conversation of it and um, taking medication was is, is still seen as a failure in some people's eyes within my family and so it is it's it's very difficult to acknowledge the mental health journey that I've been on because I've had to kind of prove that even though I have been diagnosed with all these things, I'm still a member of the family that deserve love and affection and support. And um, it's not that that's been taken away from me, but I felt once I had been diagnosed with certain things that that would change, the love would change. Yeah, sure. It's one of the complicated things I think around diagnosis because it can in some ways it's so useful to finally have a name for something and to finally kind of go right now so much about my life makes sense and you know now I can start to investigate and I can start to learn but then at the other the you know to flip that on its head there's that kind of element of almost um I suppose people worried about I certainly worried about being defined by my diagnosis where people would forget that I was a person with the thoughts and the feelings and all the rest of it and I was just this thing that had been labeled to me and I think that's quite common as well isn't it 
Yeah, definitely. So many labels and some diagnoses are a bit more stigmatized than others. And so once you tell somebody that you have a specific mental health illness or issue, um, their attitude towards you can either change or their, um, their assumptions of who they thought you were will shift. And I've noticed that a lot more in within my career and um, also the expectations that people have of um, a person that's not coping well. Um, it can be quite frustrating and it can be quite harmful. And I think it's definitely impacted me a lot um, of the assumptions that I can't do certain things when I know I can. Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. Yeah. It's, um, it gets quite complicated, doesn't it? Cause I suppose if we're not talking about these things, cause the environment to talk isn't there. And sometimes it's difficult to talk because we don't even know the words. <laughs> so we don't know what to say anyway, even, even when we're being scared of that, we're not going to be listened to. And then we've got like the media portrayal, right? So we're being, you know, some of these, some like some diagnosis is when they're portrayed in the media or in, in books or whatever it is, it's, um, it always seems to be in a certain way and it's always quite, they become scary words and they're not scary words at all. Right. I often think with a lot of mental illness, it's still, people see it as like a separate thing, you know, like it's a complete different thing, but it's not, it's all the same like emotions and thoughts and feelings that everybody has. It's just, sometimes it's like they're on steroids, right. Or sometimes they're just like a little bit out of control, but it, there's nothing that's not normal happening. It's just the way it's happening is abnormal. If that makes any sort of sense at all. Yeah. And it's also, we've all um, been socialized differently. We've all been nurtured differently. And so our life experience can impact our mental health and how we see mental health. And I think it's really important to just, for everyone to acknowledge that all of our journeys aren't the same. And it sounds like a obvious reminder, but people need to acknowledge that um, a, a person with a specific illness might not act exactly the same as somebody else and their journey might be completely different to how they got diagnosed with this illness. Some people have um, been inpatient, some people haven't with the same illnesses. And there's such a there's such an extreme view of a mental health illness sometimes when I talk about it. It's not um, just the everyday of, oh, well, it might affect my anxiety to do certain tasks. It's more of, so how many times have you been sectioned? And I've never been sectioned. <laughs> it's not a helpful conversation because it's in, then it's like, are you sure you've actually got this? Um, I remember an occupational health therapist telling me I sounded so normal compared to other borderlines that he'd spoken to. So interesting. <laughs> yeah, crikey. Yeah, it's like this. I don't know. It's like stigma within stigma, right? It's just, uh, it's just so, I suppose, layered or nuanced or whatever phrase that that's that's you know that we need to use. Yeah. So when did um, when did your mental health journey start, Sanisha? Like when did stuff start to kind of um, manifest for you? Um, so as a child, I would say I was, I struggled a lot because I was the oldest of eight siblings. I felt like I had a severe amount of responsibility, even now, I felt like I had a severe amount of responsibility to be the best, not out of, just out of my siblings, but to, um, really set a good example. And so I used to struggle a lot with my mental health as a child, I am, I'm a survivor of child abuse. And so um, I didn't talk about certain things as a child. And I think that definitely impacted how I saw the world and experienced the world. And so I would say I've been coping with a mental health illness from the age of like seven or eight. And um, I don't think this was something that 
was explored properly until I was a teenager and um, where I was struggling a lot with um, self-harm. I was struggling a lot with um, just wanting to be here as a teen, I guess. I really was struggling to find my place in the world, feeling like my past experiences would shape my future. And so that hopelessness sort of set in as a teen. And um, I remember going to the doctor because I was started to starve myself. And this is a really interesting uh, topic to explore here, but um, I, I wasn't eating a lot when I was around 15. I, I wasn't eating much at all. And it got to a point where my stomach was so hungry, it was causing me pains, physical pains. And so I, my mum took me to the doctors to say, yeah, I think she's struggling with her eating. And the doctor weighed me and because, um, my BMI was normal, even though we know that the bone density of uh, black people is heavier than others. Um, he, he just signed me off as, oh, you're fine. It's just, you're just struggling to eat. And so it was very much dismissal of, but she looks okay. Her skin isn't as pale as I would expect it to be. It's like, I'm not a white person. I'm not gonna look pale <laughs> to how you expect me to be. I'd only met this doctor about twice as well. So that was an interesting experience because I think, especially as I was a teen, I wasn't really wanting to talk about my mental health. I'd grown up with all these other stereotypes and stigmas that had shaped my view of mentally ill people, particularly witnessing it in my family. It was really difficult to reconcile that I was going through similar things. And um, these, these experiences continued without much help. Uh, my family was moving around a lot due to um, domestic violence throughout my teens as well. And so I wasn't really feeling safe and secure with any of these doctors when I was talking to them. And so I went to university and it didn't seem like my records were being shared <laughs> anywhere. And I was supposed to have um, support put in place for me to be in university, but things, paper trails get lost, I guess. And so uh, I started to experience severe panic attacks when I was in my third year, because I realized that I was coming to the end of my course and I would have to be in the real world. And um, I also get such a sense of validation through achievements because I felt, well, I'm not gonna receive a grade at the end of a semester anymore. Uh, I just have to work now. So what am I going to do? So I was really struggling. Uh, really uh, was experiencing levels of psychosis at this point. And um, yeah, it was a really dark place for me, but uh, uh, a few medication <laughs> that I was put on diazepam for a little while and I felt better. And again, the services didn't follow me through. So after I left university, I didn't talk about my mental health to a doctor again until I tried to take my own life um, at 24. And uh, this was for a very specific reason and trigger that uh, I was going through quite a lot. And I've been through a lot. If, I, if only I could write a book because it's, it's been quite dark, but I tried to look at it through a positive outlet. And um, I spoke to my doctor and they said, oh, we'll sign you up to a course for CBT for six weeks. And um, on meeting me, the therapist said, absolutely not. Uh, you've got so much story and so much trauma that you need time to unpick. And so I was then sent around to a few more people 
Um, and then I was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder and mixed anxiety and depressive disorder. Um, and I received a diagnosis in a letter uh, and I was reading it like, what does this even mean? And it was um, because we're in the UK, they describe it as emotionally unstable personality disorder. And I just thought, right, well, that's me done because <laughs> I've tried so hard to be the first in my family to go to university. I've tried so hard to be a respectable person and now I've got this mental health illness that tells the world that I'm emotionally unstable and it's due to my personality and that's how I read it because it wasn't explained to me before I'd received that letter and so I kind of disengaged from the services of course because I thought well you've labeled me this now and I don't really understand what it means and they did reach out and got me back involved in the psychotherapy for a little while um, but I was disengaged 100%. I found it really difficult. And um, I would say the mental health journey is ongoing because just this year I've been diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder from the experiences I had from a child. And it's kind of like, how was this missed? <laughs> yeah, so it's constant. It's uh, a constant battle. Yeah, sure. Crikey, that's... um. That's really heavy, Sanisha, you know, and like, yeah, thank you so much for, for sharing that and for, for your honesty around that. That's just, um, yeah, there's a lot to unpick there, huh? Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's 29 years of too much story. <laughs> yeah. I really hope the next 20 something plus years, if I'm blessed to have it, will be peaceful because I need a break. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it certainly sounds like it. Yeah, definitely. And I suppose when that, that letter came through, which I can't believe that like diagnosis are arriving through the post in that that format you know that things aren't handled with a bit more care but that's probably a, a whole separate <laughs> conversation yeah so that must have been challenging then for you to kind of um kind of like own that right and tell your, your family it was it almost like a, a, a kind of a, for want of a better expression a coming out um type of uh you know to tell your family particularly you know that they weren't you knew that that might not have been received in that way Yes, it was very difficult and particularly um, with like my immediate family. So my mom and my siblings are very supportive. However, um, because so many of us, and I say that genuinely, so many of my family members have severe mental health problems that are diagnosed or undiagnosed, but they're not talking about it they're not wanting to engage in the topic and so when I was first diagnosed it was okay what help can we do how can we support you and then the conversation kind of stops because people see that oh but you've done this now or oh you're doing this now so it's gone and I'm like it's not gone <laughs> you don't know how much work it took me to show up this morning <laughs> it's not gone yeah that's a really common misconception isn't it with mental health is that um you know, I think sometimes people, we can, people who have a diagnosis, people who are dealing with something, living with something can still like, you know, achieve incredible things. And then you do like one thing and, and everyone just assumes that that's it. You must be sorted now that that must be, uh, <laughs> that's just not the, the way it works. And something that's come up a lot in conversations I have with people is that there are aspects, I experienced this to some extent myself, and there are aspects of my own um, mental health or my mental illness that it, there's aspects of it that are like a superpower for me. So I can kind of, I can do things that a lot of people 
find a little scary and it doesn't scare me too much, you know, like, but then there's certain things that are really simple and really, really easy that most people just take for granted. And they tend to be the things that I struggle with a bit more. And so I think there's a lot of, again, complexities with, with how we respond to situations and how we react that can sometimes make people who are not doing so good appear to the outside world, like they are doing really good. Yeah, hundred percent. And I think the way the world measures what resilience is or mental strength is, is seen as performance. And for me, I am a natural performer. I, as a child, going through what I was going through, um, the, the child abuse that I was experiencing, I always had a smile outwardly. And so I have learned how to be resilient at a very, very, very young age. And so quite, a, and it's very difficult. So quite a few mental health professionals or other supporting departments within our government see an individual like me as not ill, <laughs> not ill. And it can be quite frustrating because it seems like crisis point where the symptoms are no longer palatable for others, then that's when we might help you. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't think there's any acknowledgement on the day-to-day -day experience. And for me, um, I struggle to do very simple tasks. I have a post office just literally down my road. It's no more than a six minute walk. It took me nine months to feel confident enough to go in there and post something. And I say that with all honesty. And um, I felt so frustrated with myself when I, I had things to send off and uh, I couldn't do it. And it was a very simple task, but it's because I have a, such a fear of the unknown. And um, because I'd just moved to this area, I'd never been to the post office before. It was small and I'd driven past it and I just sat outside in the car and I thought, no, what if they say something? And nobody or that experience isn't recognised because it's, oh, but you've got a degree. Oh, but you did a TED talk. Oh, but you haven't been sectioned. You're okay. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, sure. And, I, and when people kind of like dismiss things like that as well, then it kind of it automatically like it doesn't validate your experience. Right. So it, it kind of it, you're not you're not being seen, you're not being heard. It's like, hang on, I've told you that this is what that is. So that's it. That is what it is. You know, like it doesn't matter what else I've done or what else has happened. Nothing can take away from what I've I've just said. But there does seem to be that really common process. And I think it really affects how and why people talk about mental health why it's such a complicated conversation that people are reluctant when they need help to ask for it because we're constantly thinking, you know, am I sick enough to get help? You know, I used to think, I used to sit there and go, well, everyone says, everything I read says that if I'm sick, I need to phone the Samaritans. And, you know, then when I was in crisis, I'd be like, but what if I ring them and I'm not sick enough for them? What, what will they tell me? Will I get in trouble for wasting their time? You know, it was, it was always waiting to be like sick enough to do something. And in, in reality, you've been sick enough for a long time if you get into that point. Right. And uh, yeah, that whole comparison of writing off the small things to only focus on the, these big dramatic things it's um yeah it really it, yeah like unvalid i don't know what the opposite to validate is it really unvalidates someone's um someone's lived experience doesn't it yeah definitely and it definitely makes you feel like you have to pretend to be for me i feel like i i have to pretend to be weaker than i am i think 
as a black woman, I'm seen as strong, intimidating, aggressive, loud, all these other stereotypes and stigmas and schemas that are based on certain racialized identities. And so I feel like when I'm asking for help, I notice when I, I, I notice that function and high functioning and terms that are thrown around and your performance of, okay, this person's in crisis or this person needs support or this person um, has this mental health illness is based on a measure of how others are performing instead of how that individual is performing. So my low functioning might be somebody else's high functioning, but that's not my business. I need help when I can't function as myself because I know how hard I can work or how much I can do. I used to be able to run 5K a day. You can see it, I've not been doing that. But also <laughs> I've struggled to just leave my house now. And so I know there's so many different things that have been taken away from me due to me struggling within this weird, wild time we're living in. And that acknowledgement isn't there because, but you can work. It's like, if I don't work, I cannot eat, I cannot live, like I, I will live on my own. I have to do that. So 95% of my energy, mental energy goes on my work. Yeah, yeah, sure. It's like um, this whole thing about resilience, isn't it? It's like, just because you can be, doesn't mean you should have to be. You know, just because you can be strong and get and drag yourself through something doesn't mean you should have to, you know, just because you've got the ability. It doesn't like that doesn't mean that. Right. OK, well, we'll just forget about that. That's a, a, a strong person. Like, because I think as well, we only we. So I would say about myself, like I'm how strong I am is just how strong I am. I don't know how that compares to your strength. I don't know how that compares to anyone else's strength. So I don't know if I'm strong or not. <laughs> I'm just me and I'm just doing the best with it. So it's irrelevant, isn't it? What anyone else's level of resilience or however we want to, um, you know, however we want to describe it. It doesn't matter, does it? At the end of the day, it's what's happening to that individual person. hundred mm, percent. And I think that's the, that's the approach that I would like more people and organizations to take is that, person instead of this is your illness or I expect you to behave like this or um oh you could have done this oh so maybe you're just playing it up and I feel like that's that's the biggest narrative that has bothered me a lot in the last few years of am I even unwell when I know how unwell I am and have been and so compare comparisons of what strength is strength can be anything to whatever community or wherever a community is based, uh, their culture, what they see as strength can be very different. And so having that who's high functioning and who's not sort of um, dichotomy is not helpful. It's not helpful for our, uh, the mental health community. And I think it definitely impacts who can get help and how much help they can get. And yeah. for me, I struggle with basic everyday tasks like eating, uh, washing, walking, certain things I struggle with, but I'm an amazing public speaker. So should I not have this skill because I'm a, because I have a mental health illness or free? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Again, it's being able to do, do the things that some, that the vast majority of people consider to be a scary thing like public speaking. So, oh, she can do that. 
she must be fine. You know, for me, it's, oh, he can have a podcast. He can talk about these things. He must be fine. But yeah, it's the smaller things that are become the bigger, the bigger deals. Yeah. So there's something you talk about in your talk a lot, and we've kind of alluded to it a little bit already, Sanisha, and that's, and it's something I, I try and talk about a lot because it keeps coming back in these conversations I have in different ways, but it's this whole thing about um, identity and more specifically like a loss of identity for, it can be all manner of different reasons that force us to live this like inauthentic lifestyle and how that the pressure of pretense affects our mental health and i know you, you talked in your in your talk a lot about you know identity and not being fully able to like realize yourself you know and, and step into yourself had like a huge negative impact but it's a really common theme isn't it in, in mental health and mental illness yes definitely I, I, uh, they say a key indicator of um borderline personality disorder is uh the low sense of self and i think i've uh as much as I struggle with the diagnosis sometimes and the criteria that they tick to see whether you, you know you meet it, when I do look at the different symptoms, it, it makes sense because that's how I've always felt. I've always felt that my sense of self has been weaker because I've molded myself to work for other people. I've code switched in certain ways so I wouldn't be the intimidating black woman in the room. I've minimized my expression due to a fear of coming out as bi to my family and the experience within there. And then struggling with my mental health um, illnesses, witnessing family members being sectioned involuntarily and um, witnessing scary behaviors as a child. It made me very much stigmatized to mental health illnesses and so there's so much there's so much in there that identities and how we see ourselves and how we accept ourselves it's so important for us to talk about these taboo topics because only from when I started to explore my mind a bit more versus just put on a mask I've now got a sense of happiness it's not all the time, <laughs> but I now have a sense of self-worth, happiness that I'd never had as a young younger person. And uh, I'm only hoping that continues to grow. And currently I'm on um, medication for my depression and um, for my psychosis because I hear voices. And I think it's very it's very important for me to share that I have, I take medication now because in the past I, I, I was a, a, a not a mental health advocate in regards to taking medication because it really, when I took it when I was younger, it really affected how I saw myself, how I saw others, my mood. I was just, I, I'm a very smiley person 95% of the time when you get me on a good day. And I felt like I didn't have a smile anymore. I felt like my everything was dampened. And, um, but I think that was more of, they didn't have the right medication for me. And now I do feel like the medication I am on is keeping me emotionally stable, but also allowing me to have a level of expression that I needed. And so I'm now advocating for medication, just make sure it's the right one for you and to keep, you know, pushing back if you feel like there's something wrong with it because 
I, I feel so much better now. Yeah, I I'm, I get I get that completely. I always describe meds for me. I'm on medication at the moment myself, and that my medication tops me up to a point where I can do all the stuff to look after myself. And when I didn't take medication, people would say, "Have you tried this? Have you tried that?" None of it worked, and mm-hmm. I thought none of it worked because that was my fault. Right? So that was just another stick to beat myself with, and it just all it did was just give me enough enough space to just be able to like do do the work, you know, do the stuff to try and to try and um to try and get better. And it's something that I'm really interested in around identity is how did you start Sanisha to kind of, to figure out what you needed to be able to start showing up as yourself? Because when we hide for a long time and it's something that I did and I'm still learning to do, like you say, it's a work in progress, right? And but it, I had so many different faces for so many different situations. I forgot what the real one was. And the biggest thing for me was just trying to meet myself in the middle, just come back because I'd come so far away from what it was. I didn't even know anymore. You know, it, it wasn't even a distant, distant memory. And I was wondering for yourself how that process started, how you started to, um, yeah, just figure out you and how you were going to, to show up for yourself. Um, I would say it wasn't a conscious decision for me, and I can definitely relate to all those different feelings and sentiments you shared there. Um, It wasn't conscious at all. I feel that I started to experience panic attacks and emotional devastation like I'd never had before, even though nothing was as traumatic as what had happened in the past and so I felt haunted and it was really a choice am I going to live or die and um I it sounds you know very matter of fact but that's what it was for me I had to choose um I can't survive with uh, feeling like I every day I'm sad every day uh, I would burst into tears out of nowhere my soul was unhappy so I feel like I didn't choose to, you know, turn it around or explore my identity and come out and be open about these things. I feel like my mind said, no, enough. And um, I couldn't control. Majority of the time I was having panic attacks, I had no idea they were even happening. And I was just extremely distressed. And so I would say my mind fought back really and said, you know what, Sanisha, you've done the best you can to protect yourself since you were a child and to survive in this world. But now you actually need to nourish who you truly are instead of who the world is telling you to be. Yeah, I suppose anything that's like a almost like a subconscious short term coping mechanism is not designed to be used long term. Right. So, yeah, we eventually we've got to get to that that point where we can say, okay, now let's let's take those really small tentative vulnerable soft steps into the into the world and just see what it's all about i recently spoke to an author a wonderful man called james withy and he was talking about um this idea that when you have a, a when you go through something huge with your mental health it's like a double recovery because there's recovering from the illness and then there's recovering from the trauma of suppressing that illness and pretending that you are well. And I'd never thought about it in two stages like that. But now that I've heard that, I'm thinking about it all the time, every time I speak to some, someone. And that really was kind of what I was thinking, you know, when you were talking before, it's like, it's, it's two lots of recovery happening simultaneously from two things that came about together, but are also very separate as well. Yeah, definitely. And that's why I would say, even though having 
these severe mental illnesses are not ideal. If I, I couldn't imagine a life without them because I wouldn't have been able to have gotten the support about the other things that were happening in my life and being able to really unpick what type of person I want to be and um, admit to myself how much I'd been through. And so I think, well, I wouldn't call it a blessing in disguise because at times it's been very difficult, but- Very disguised, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, huge disguise there. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's provided me with an opportunity for self-discovery and it's, it's provided me space to actually question the experiences that have happened to me, whether that's racism or biphobia, homophobia, um, sexism, any of those isms and phobias that can be thrown at an individual and, have, uh, and how much work goes into having to navigate all of that and um, having an opportunity where I can pause and uh, also requ require support for once instead of me feeling like I have to carry everything. It's been helpful. I still struggle to ask for help um, because it's not in my nature because I've trained myself since a child to do what I have to do or do what's needed to be done to ensure um, myself and my family is okay. Um, but I am getting better. Yeah. And that's, that's a lovely thing to be able to say, right? that you know just i'm getting better that's that's really nice just to be able to to say even if it is even if it is ongoing yeah when did um when did the power of vulnerability um you know come become known to you sanisha when did that become one of your uh, one of your tools um i would say it was very much in that moment um one of my one of my work colleagues, um, when I first started working uh, after graduating, and uh, they started talking about their experiences being black and gay, and I think that was the huge turning point for me, really, in um, acknowledging how much insight and um, solidarity I felt in that moment, and it was such a small moment. Uh, but it, it's had a huge impact on me and continues to and always will because when my friend um when I was a teen and I witnessed like uh different things and when I was witnessing discrimination in regards to my friend's sexuality from her family I felt like talking about your truth is problematic <laughs> talking about your truth can hurt others and um that's true. Sometimes it can hurt others, but majority of the time, having these truths, these secrets hurt ourselves. And so I definitely see being vulnerable um, and practicing vulnerability as a, your, your superpower is great in helping others to reconcile their experiences by finding um, solidarity and a message as well as um, really providing providing space for communities to grow and challenge themselves. And I think once I started to look at vulnerability like that, that's where I've started to do more and more talks to different communities and to challenge misconceptions about, um, about mental health, um, about stigmas and stereotypes about certain communities. 
I've recognized by having a conversation or starting a conversation um, provides space for feedback, uh, reflections, whether negative or positive, but to have that space to say, this is an experience, this is my experience, and to own that is powerful. And I own all, nobody can throw that, oh, you was abused as a child. It's like, okay, that, that's public knowledge. I already know. <laughs> everybody knows. You have these mental health illnesses. <laughs> okay, everybody knows. I don't care. And then your sexuality, oh, are you sure it's real? I don't care. <laughs> so there's so much in my life where I think by owning my identity and saying this is me and I love myself, whether you love me or not, is uh, it's, it's changed how I see myself a lot. Yeah. yeah that's awesome that's um that just sounds even just hearing you say it then that sounds so empowering mm -hmm. to really own the the good and the bad and um i always thought you know when i i was poorly for a long time and i didn't tell anyone anything i didn't even tell my wife and i always thought that as soon as i spoke up that that's it that she would leave me that i'd have my kids taken off me that i'd lose my job and I, th I thought it would make me like really alone and adrift from, you know, from my community, from society. And then what I found out is the complete opposite, the complete opposite. You know, my relationships are, 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 are deeper and they're worth more, you know, they're on a more authentic level. And um, it's allowed me to learn more about myself and just that, that, that whole process of just kind of saying, right, here it is. Because what we soon realize is that we're all like, you know, we've all got our, our stuff, haven't we? You know, and it's all different, but it's also all the same. There's a lot of blurred lines, you know, and um, there's something, it's such a human experience. Struggling with mental health and mental illness, I've found to be a very human experience. And being able to connect on that level through sharing is, it, being poorly made me more, have more compassion. And I think compassion and empathy is what we're really missing, isn't it? As a society, you know, the way that we view other people, but um, yeah, being able to talk truthfully and connect really, it brings that to the surface, doesn't it? That level of compassion and, and empathy that we need. Yeah, 100%. And I, 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 I agree with that wholeheartedly. Compassion is definitely something that's missing in key areas of our society. And I think by having these conversations where we do have to be vulnerable, either about our experiences or our knowledge gaps on the topic, that's where we can provide a space to learn and actually listen and uh, build together an understanding for our communities instead of um, just tiptoeing around topics or uh, you know, not engaging because it's not your issue because anyone at any time can be dealing with a mental health illness or problem anyone at any time can you know needs support and so I think for those of us that do have lived experiences of mental health illnesses because we know what we would have liked or or the support we would have liked to receive we try a bit more to be empathetic to others and I think by us sharing our experiences of that empathy it would just be really you know it would be really powerful for communities to come together and share that space um, and by having people with lived experience platformed and um, instead of people speaking for us yeah yeah very much so I, I really interesting what you said then as well about people not engaging in maybe in other people's conversations you know and that's so true isn't it so many people when it comes to the big topics the important stuff so many people are so scared of saying something wrong 
that they choose to say nothing rather than just say, I don't really know about that. Where's the best place to go and learn? You know, you don't even have to teach me. You just just point me in the right direction and I'll go and have a look. You know, I always say about myself that I'm fine with being ignorant about something as long as I know that I'm ignorant and I'm doing something to change that. Right. Then that kind of like, that's how I want to, how I want to see it. But is that kind of, um, all your experiences and all the things we've just talked to is that kind of brought you to the work that you do now. How do you describe your work, Sanisha? Let's, let's start there for people listening. I asked you a question there already. (laughs) I describe my work as transformative and also empowering. So I like to work with organizations and businesses and individuals and community groups to understand our knowledge gaps of others um, or how we see communities that are harder to reach and um, really providing a space, a safer but brave space to um, to explore that, to explore that through listening and platforming and amplifying people with lived experience who are often not the decision makers in some of these organizations, um, often have little power to make changes within organizations. And I like to be the external voice for those individuals. Uh, so if they can't say this is wrong and uh, or they if they feel like they've made a complaint and then they're now seen as the troublemaker, I'm happy to be the troublemaker because I don't work there full time. <laughs> so, you know, uh, I see my work as, um, uh, yeah, really fostering, fostering change in a way that is sustainable and long lasting. And, but for me, the way I approach it is with hundred percent authenticity. And so I've stopped code switching. So I stopped softening my voice and stopped um, not using my true South London accent to try and push myself up to make myself more palatable to others. Obviously I could never hide my race in spaces, but now I'm um, obviously, uh, you know, sometimes I will wear my Afro out just to be a, a visible representation of individuals who are criticized for being themselves. Um, talking about my sexuality at work, talking about mental health, majority of the uh, meetings I have with clients, regardless of the topic, the way I will introduce myself is that I'm a black bisexual woman with severe mental health problems. And the reason why I talk about my mental health problems and illnesses uh, at workplaces is because I think so many people in work hide who they are or what they're going through or what experiences have shaped them into the individual that's now an employee of your business. And if you don't get to, um, obviously you get to know what people share, but if you don't create an environment where an individual feels that they can be themselves without having to edit and hide, they're only going to be thinking about that or obsessing about that instead of actually being productive or feeling like these people genuinely like me, not the token, not the uh, voice of or how I say things when I change the way I talk, but these people actually like me for me. So yeah. That's what I mean. <laughs> oh, yeah, that just sounds wonderful. Like, you know, I suppose people spend so much time at work as well, don't they? You know, we spend so much chunks of our time at work and a lot of the people we spend that time with, we wouldn't necessarily choose to, you know, we're all thrown together in these working environments and being able to, to show up in that because that's a long time to not be yourself. Right. That's a lot, uh, a long time to pretend to fit into 
a system or a, a place that that might not suit you. So, and then I suppose if people are being able to do that at work, then they can go home and practice it at home, right? Or out on the street or as they go about their day-to-day life in the community. Mm, it really works. For me, I, I worked for an organisation. Um, I worked for Stonewall, the LGBT charity, and being in an organisation where you're surrounded by people who are... Um, either LGBT or allies and openly allies, um, it gave me the safety to feel like I could come out to my family. So I came out at work first instead of with my family. And I think that's so important to ensure that obviously coming out should never be the goal um, unless that's your goal, but it's not for communities to say, if you don't come out, your um, identity isn't valid, but it gave me the confidence to, have the conversation with my family. And um, yeah, I don't think I would have got that confidence if I didn't have that work experience. And so for others who aren't as lucky as me to land in an organization quite early in their career that does have that level of inclusivity, they, they must be struggling because with all the many different traumatic experiences that I've experienced as a child, I don't leave that at the door when I, um, going to work I work from home now so it's constant but <laughs> when I was going into an office I'm not leaving those experiences at the door I, I'm dealing with my childhood trauma I'm living those experiences of um, homophobia or biphobia or racism uh, there's been many times where things would happen on a journey towards work and then you'd feel like if I talk about this at work, then I'm playing the race card or I'm going to be dismissed. But why should we have to hide what's harming us to make others feel more comfortable because they don't want to start a conversation? But if something's impacting the people that you're working with, isn't it better that you know who they are so you can be more mindful of the language you're using, be more thoughtful about different opportunities to celebrate certain identities and to really just think, what can I do to ensure that the playing field is leveled? Because I'm a very working class person. I grew up on free school meals. I grew up on council estates. I'm not that far removed from that culture. And so we have to think about all the different uh, levels of privileges that some of us have and how we can ensure that we can provide access for other communities. And that's my big thing. How can we provide access to more people to ensure that more people have a positive quality of life or career experience instead of walking around with trauma? Yeah, yeah. And walking around with trauma and then feeling like um, that that should be normal or that they deserve that trauma or that you know, that that's just their cross to bear and that's just something they have to do because that's how society can make people feel, right? Is that, oh, this is your lot. You've got to deal with it. And that's just, that's not the case. That's not how it's supposed to um, supposed to be. Yeah, something I think about a lot is um, like our, our sphere of influence. And this came from a previous episode in a conversation about, mas- we we're talking about masculinity and healthy masculinity, but um, yeah, that sphere of influence, right? And that it doesn't matter whether your sphere of influence is like two people or like 300 million people. Like if you can just just pass pass that on, pass these these ways of, of showing up, leading by example, showing compassion, and, and, and that's how it spreads, right? That's how we sort of pay it forward or pass it along. 
you know, well, one person had such an impact, profound impact on myself so early in my career that I recognized the power of having these conversations and um, trying to live my authentic self, but also encouraging others to allow me to be my true self. And from that space, obviously, I've done my TED talk and I've delivered quite a few different talks. So that message has trickled onto many other people from that conversation many years ago. And that moment, that that pivotal moment in my life has now become a very pivotal moment for others because I am now sharing my story based on the importance of being vulnerable with others and really allowing yourself to be truly seen which can feel scary but at the end of the day I would rather be seen as me and to be loved as me instead of to be loved for who people think I am Mm. yeah yeah it's a lovely way to um lovely way to put it and you mentioned the the TED talk it's come up a few a few times of you know you talk about being vulnerable and putting yourself out there and there's one thing putting yourself out there is another thing doing a a TED talk you know that must have been quite an experience and that's had like I I watched it again today in preparation for this I watched it a few times Alicia I'm very taken with it but um and it's on about like 38k (laughs) views for that video which is unbelievable but that's um that must have been interesting for you though because that's a different level of vulnerability right because that's now that's gone outside of your community outside of your work out it's kind of like out of your control now if that makes makes sense right yep 100 percent. there's um people from wherever being able to see that message and that's why i think um without obviously i will watch the video and critique myself because that's how my that's how my toxic energy works but i'm aware of it but I do think for others, um, I've had so much positive feedback on just how they've needed to feel validated in certain platforms and to hear somebody talk about certain things um, has just really helped those sort of individuals. And um, yes, it's a level of exposure that I wasn't used to, nor was I asking for, um, but I do, um, I see the importance of having that um, that piece out there and um, I definitely feel the positive impact that, that has created even if I felt very much intimidated um, being asked to do a TED talk and feeling like um, <laughs> who am I nobody knows me why would anybody even want to engage with anything I say and uh, that's that um, narrative that I had in my head has now changed to I'm actually an amazing storyteller because I did that by myself yeah yeah definitely it's the very definition of practicing what you preach Mm. is how you know like just just to to do exactly all the things that you that you talk about doing and the reason I was taken with it is one of something that I like to say in the mental health conversation is that we all break in different ways but often it's a lot of the same stuff that comes out and from you talking about your experiences obviously I can never and I will never know what it's like to have those experiences. But then when you moved on to talking about how those experiences affected your identity and and showing up in the world and how that, that part of it, I was like, well, I can, I can identify with that. You know, I can't, we, we get to place it. We get to the same place from different starting points or, you know, there's probably more eloquent way to say that, but that's what really kind of shined through for me. And that's what I think, you know, my take on it was the importance of talking about this stuff is you don't know 
who's going to hear it and how that's going to um, how that's going to affect them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because there's so much um, commonalities that can occur in talks like that that are so open about your human experience because we are living a very human like we're living as humans so we have to be able to share the you know the times where it has been difficult as well and I think um for people with certain identities it's been really helpful um to have their experiences validated but also for people who potentially have quite stigmatizing views have contacted me and said hearing it come from somebody who's not westernized in that sense or um has a similar lived experience to me or is from the same culture ethnicity wise um they've challenged their homophobia they've challenged the preconceptions and dismissals that they had of people with mental health illnesses and so I did that TED talk with the hope that it would impact members of um marginalized communities and I I believe that it's done that that was that was the goal for me well not only to tell my story and to talk about why vulnerability is my superpower but also to acknowledge that it's everyone's superpower because I think anyone can share something that they've experienced to a degree whatever that is whether that's prison experiences whether it's experiences of drugs alcohol depression all these different taboo topics so many members of our society have experienced these things and if as a younger person, these conversations were more usualized. I would, I would have been much more happier at a younger age. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's the yeah. I really like, um, I really like that. Sorry, it's just giving me a lot to think about. Then I was like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's really got me. Yeah, but Sanisha, I've enjoyed our chat today so much. I because I'd watched that talk a few times and I was, I really didn't know where to start with this conversation. I was thinking like there's so much. And if we broke all these different elements down into like single things, it would probably be like five different podcasts. But um, I think between us, we've done a fantastic job of kind of getting around everything. And I can't thank you enough for your time today, mate. That was wonderful. Thank you so much, Tom. It's really, really great to speak with you. And thank you so much for the invitation. Thank you. proper mental podcast please like and subscribe the space time